Thank you for listening to Scandinavian Crimes Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode links and be part of our other social media platforms where you can leave a topic suggestion or even share some of your insights regarding the subject matter of the episode. We will always do our best to provide a well-researched episode, but sometimes due to limited access to information and translation issues, some information can be lost. It is therefore good to do your own research and get a deeper understanding of a case of your own interest. So with that all said, let us start today's episode. Welcome to Scandinavian Crimes. My name is Devante and say hello to my lovely co-host Delilah. Hi. And on this podcast, we will cover famous Scandinavian criminals who made their mark throughout Scandinavian history. So the last one was about mass shooting. So we was like, hey, let's kind of continue the theme for the second to last episode of the show, just so we can kind of keep up this flow, I guess. But this story is about Anders Barrage Brevik, who began his series of domestic terrorist acts on July 22nd by bombing government civilians and workers of the Youth League summer camp, resulting in 77 deaths. Eight were killed by bombing. 67 were killed by gunfire and two were just casualties of the situation. As a result of this tragic incident, the 2011 Norwegian attack would become the deadliest attack in Norway's history since World War II, which means he was pulling wartime numbers just for some sort of disagreement of ideology when it came to the public and the public view. But we'll get into all that when we kind of break down the story. So make sure you go grab your tea, grab your snacks, do what you got to do so that way you can listen to the podcast in a very relaxed state and be attentive and listen for details. And this is a story of the terrorist Anders Bering Brevik. Brevik was born February 13, 1979 in Oslo, Norway. He had a troubled upbringing marked by reports of parental abuse and psychological issues. His parents, Rinch Berink and Jens Derek Brevik, divorced when he was just one years old. His father, a civil economist and diplomat, had limited involvement in his upbringing while his mother, a nurse, had a tumultuous relationship with Brevik. Neighbors reported hearing fights and observed his mother leaving Brevik and his siblings alone for long periods of time while she worked as a nurse. In February 1983, it prompted concerns by neighbors. Brevik's mother sought assistance from the National Center of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. The psychiatrist at SSBU concluded that Brevik needed to be removed from his mother's care and placed in foster care system in order to get a normal development. In the reports, they highlighted an emotional and psychological abuse he endured from his mother where she allegedly sexualized him and physically and mentally abused him. She also had a borderline personality disorder and severe depression, resulting in her projecting aggressive and sexual fantasies onto Brevik. According to the psychiatrist's assessment, Brevik exhibited a lack or even an absence of emotions. He also had difficulty in socializing with people of his age. He appeared overly cautious and almost in need of being in control, as well as afraid to do something completely wrong. Occasionally, however, his emotional emptiness would be interrupted by fits of extreme and uncontrolled emotions. They believed his emotional voidness was a result of his mother's negative reactions whenever Brevik displayed any kind of emotion around her. Despite the SSBU's recommendations to urgently place Brevik in foster care, the Child Welfare Services instead placed Brevik in respite care on weekends only with the mother taking care of him on weekdays. 
When Brevik's father learned of the situation, he filed for custody. Although Brevik's mother initially agreed to the respite care arrangement, she demanded full custody when the father filed for custody. Legal proceedings ensued when both parents were involved in the custody battle. Ultimately, the case was dropped due to insufficient evidence and Brevik remained in the custody of his mother. The troubled background marked by the parental abuse, psychological issues, and lack of intervention from the child welfare authorities likely contributed to Brevik's later development and extremist ideologies. It provides insight into factors that have may influence his radicalization and the path he eventually took culminating into a devastating attack he carried out in 2011. In 2002, at the age of 23, Brevik began a nine-year plan to fund the 2011 terrorist attack. For years, he actively engaged in online forums, joining discussions and expressing his opposition to Islam and immigration, as well as feminism. He began making preparations for the attack, carefully concealing his violent intentions. He established a computer programming business alongside with his customer service job and held offshore bank accounts. His company went bankrupt and he moved back into his mother's home to save money. Psychiatrists noted his mental health deteriorated, leading to withdrawal and even further isolation. Despite visiting firing ranges and countries with relaxed gun laws to sharpen his skills, he started playing more shooting games as a trainer simulation, claiming that it aided his target acquisition skills. By 2009, Brevik had no declared income and his funds were gradually depleted in January 2010. In 2010, Brevik attempted to purchase an illegal weapon in Prague, but failed and turned to legal channels in Norway. He acquired a semi-automatic Glock 34 pistol through a gun license from a pistol club membership and a semi-automatic Rugger Mini-14 rifle through hunting licenses. In June 2011, a month before the attack, he paid off his outstanding balance on his nine credit cards to ensure success to funds during his preparations. In late June or early July 2011, it's still kind of unclear-ish, Brevik relocated to a rural area near Asta and Amat in Landed County, where he owned a farm. According to his manifesto, he used his farming company as a cover to legally obtain large quantities of artificial fertilizer and other chemicals to manufacture explosives. After purchasing a small quantity of explosive primer from an online shop in Poland, his name was among 60 reported by the Norwegian Customs Service to the Police Security Service. However, no suspicions were raised based on the information. On July 22nd, Brevik began his terrorist attack. The initial attack took place in Oslo, specifically within the executive government quarter. Brevik parked a white van packed with explosives outside the government headquarters near the office of then Prime Minister Jen Saltenberg. He then detonated the bomb, causing a massive explosion and destroyed several buildings in the area. The blast killed eight people and injured over 200, some of whom were trapped in the rubble. At 1534, which for my American folk, that is 334, a witness contacted the police and reported a person dressed in a police uniform armed with a pistol entering an unmarked flat Dablo vehicle. The witness provided information, including the license plate number and the suspect's description. His face was concealed by a police helmet and equipped with a face shield. There was uncertainty regarding the identification of Brevik, and it took 20 minutes for the police to call back to the witness for more information. In the aftermath of the explosion, the police evacuated the area and conducted a thorough search for any additional explosive devices. They also appealed to the public through media, urging residents to evacuate central Oslo. 
Subsequently, the police announced the bomb was a combination of fertilizer and fuel oil, ANFO, resembling the composition used in the Oklahoma City bombing. Approximately one and a half hours after the Oslo explosion, the second attack occurred on the island of Yatoya, where the targeted site was a summit camp organized by AUF. Brevik drove to the island of Yatoya, about 40 kilometers northeast of Oslo. He boarded a ferry to Yatoya Island, posing as a police officer conducting a routine check due to the bombing in Oslo. Upon arrival, he killed the camp leader and security officer before opening fire on the attendees, both on the island and those attempting to escape by swimming. The police responded to the attacks within minutes, but it took them nearly an hour to reach the island due to logistical difficulties. The shooting lasted around an hour and a half until police arrived, and Brevik surrendered without resistance and was arrested. Survivors hid in various locations, including caves and bushes. Several individuals and civilian boats played a crucial role in rescuing survivors from the water. The brutal attack claimed the lives of 69 individuals and left 32 injured. Among the victims were friends of Sultenberg and the stepbrother of Norway's crown princess, Met Merit. Brevik's child began April 16, 2012, and was held in Oslo District Court. The trial was presided over by a panel of five judges, and the prosecution was led by Attorney General Tor Axel Bush. Brevik initially pleaded not guilty to the charges of terrorism and mass murder, but he later admitted to carrying out the attacks. He claimed that he was trying to start a revolution against what he saw as the Islamization of Europe. During the trial, Brevik was allowed to give an opening statement which he used to justify his actions and to promote his far-right ideology. Throughout the trial, Brevik remained defiant and unrepentant, to often making Nazi salutes and engaging in other provocative behavior. He also used the trial as a platform to espouse his extremist beliefs, and he frequently interrupted proceedings by making political statements. Over the course of the trial, prosecutors presented extensive evidence against Brevik, including witness testimony, forensic evidence, and Brevik's own writing and online activity. The defense argued Brevik was mentally ill and that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. However, on August 24, 2012, the court found Brevik guilty of terrorism and mass murder. He was sentenced to the maximum penalty of 21 years in prison, which can be extended if he is deemed continuing to be a threat to society. Now, regarding the psychological evaluation of Brevik, he underwent his first examination in 2011 by a court-appointed forensic psychiatrist. They diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, stating that he developed this disorder over a certain amount of time and was psychotic during the attacks in the observation period. He was also diagnosed with substance abuse. The psychiatrist concluded that Brevik was criminally insane, noting his inappropriate effect and lack of empathy, incoherent speech, and delusional thoughts, and him being suicidal as well as homicidal. The initial diagnosis sparked debate among mental health experts in Norway as some questioned the court-appointed psychiatrist's opinion and the country's definition of being criminally insane. However, the prison psychiatric staff did not observe signs of psychosis, depression, or suicidal tendencies in Brevik. Instead, they believe he had personality disorders. Requests were made for another opinion, and eventually a new period of psychiatric observations were used, as well as different methods were commenced. 
If the original diagnosis had been upheld, Brevard could not have been sentenced to prison, but could have been detained in a psychiatric hospital. The prosecution expected him to be declared legally insane. However, the second psychiatric evaluation published on April 10, 2012, concluded that Brevik was not psychotic during the attacks or the evaluation and diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, as well as having narcissistic personality disorder as well. Brevik expressed his preference for being declared sane, considering being sent to the psychiatric ward as an ultimate humiliation. Like since August 2011, Brevik has been held in a very high security prison. Brevik was held in isolation from other inmates and has limited contact with healthcare workers and guards. This form of isolation is known as relative social isolation and was recognized by the European Court of Human Rights in 2016. According to his lawyer, on March 2016, Brevik had embraced Nazi beliefs during his imprisonment. He has self-identified as a fascist Nazi and practitioner of Odinism throughout his incarceration. In January 2022, a trial commenced at Telemark District Court to determine whether the district attorney's denial of parole for Brevik should be reversed or upheld. The prosecution opposed parole, citing the necessity of preventative detention to safeguard society. This led to Brevik's re-indictment, which mandated a trial as per the requirements for prisoners in preventative detention who have been denied parole. During the trial, Brevik made Nazi salutes to the judge and the public present in the courtroom. He stated that he identifies as a Nazi and intends to work for white power, but renounces violence. He expressed his desire to register a Nazi political party and potentially run for parliament elections in Norway. Brevik's lawyer, Oysten Storvik, advocated for his client to serve his prison sentence alongside another inmate, specifically Philip Manhouse, to avoid harm to either party. Various witnesses testified during the trial, including a retired psychiatrist, a prison advisor, and an assistant warden. The psychiatrist suggested possible activities to alleviate the monotony of Brevik's imprisonment, acknowledged the limitations imposed by high security conditions. The prison advisor presented evidence supporting the prison's position against parole, highlighting the interception of letters and concerns about inspiring Brevik's supporters. The assistant warden mentioned the potential for progression in Brevik's sentence, but noted the current lack thereof, referring to the limited advancement towards lower security conditions or parole. During closed arguments, Storvik emphasized the need for improvement and rehabilitation, stating that without proper facilitation, the government's treatment of Bravik in prison may violate regulations and hinder his prospects of release. The verdict delivered on February 1st described Brevik as mentally disturbed and possessing a mind that is challenging for others to comprehend. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, Norway was plunged into a state of shock and mourning. A national memorial service was held on July 24, 2011, and the country observed a minute of silence in honor of the victims. Thousands of new regions attended the funerals of the victims and the country united in grief and solidarity. The attacks also sparked a national debate about immigration, integration, and extremism in Norway. Some commentators argue that the country's traditionally open and tolerant society had failed to address the threat of far-right extremism, while others pointed to the need for better dialogue and understanding between different types of communities. In the years since the attacks, Norway has implemented various measures to strengthen security and combat extremism. The government has increased funding for police and intelligence services, establishing a national center for preventing radicalization and introduced new laws to combat hate speech and extremist propaganda. Now, the trial of Anders Breivik also had a significant impact on Norway, as well as the overall world. 
The trial was widely praised for its fairness and transparency and for the way it allowed Brevik to be held accountable for his crimes while upholding the principles of a democratic society. At the same time, the trial also raised difficult questions about the nature of extremism, mental illness, as well as justice. Some commentators criticized the way in which Brevik was allowed to use this trial as a platform for his extremist views, while others questioned whether the verdict of guilty but sane was the right one. Overall, the 2011 Norway attacks and the trial of Anders Brevik continue to serve as a reminder of the dangers of extremism and the importance of upholding values of democracy, tolerance, and justice. Wow, that was uh, that was pretty intense. That it was is pretty uh, intense. Yeah, that, that was pretty intense in general. Um, I guess let me just get this part out the way, and then you know I'm, I'm gonna let you do your little your your little chat. Um. First of all, my biggest issue, which I reacted to, was the fact that the police took so long to respond when someone called that there's a bomb that's been going off. Um, that would never fly. I'm living in, like, it's a different country over here, but that would never fly. It should not take 11 minutes. Ooh, it wasn't even minutes, right? It was, like, what, an hour or something like It was that? 20 minutes for them to call back to the, to the witness yeah. who noticed this, but it took them actually an hour to identify the car that or find the car. That is absurd. That, already that is a problem by itself. But um, we have to understand as well, you know, if we got to be fair, back then it wasn't really that common for terrorism to occur in, you know, in general, honest, like honestly, after... I guess after 9-11, you guys became more um, uh, very, very, um, what's it called? I guess. What, hyper-vigilant? Not secure, but like hyper, like, yeah, you guys got really like, like before that, you guys weren't really that, had that, well, I can't speak, whoa. <laughs> before the 9-11 attack, for example, you guys didn't really have that high security until after the attack. You started having more security measures, right? The same thing here. It's like the attack happened. It's like, what? Surprise attack. What's going on? We need to fix this ASAP. And then while the bombing is happening, this ha they have to like find if there's more bombings going on, first of all, in the main capital city. And then they have to like, they have to get as much information as they can. Um... I understand. I do understand like, that. It's yeah, just, you had to. <laughs> it's just like, for, like if I'm, I had to like you know sip, like you know benefit of the doubt thing. But go you know, ahead, but sorry. it's just like even then, like let's say for example, even on a more localized crime, if someone says like, "Hey, there are gunshots," the expectation is you arrive and you figure out what's going on within a certain amount of time because the longer you wait, there's more chances the the of chance, more death. Yeah. So the fact that it took you 20 minutes to call back, took you an hour to find a car, that is a total of an hour and 20 minutes that have just gone to just where? Not being productive. But that's Infinity for me. Infinity and beyond. You know, that, for me, that's, I mean, that's an issue, but whatever. Sure, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Because um, it's not like this is the first terrorist attack in Norway 
but they probably didn't classify you know those things you know these are not cases we covered but it's not the first terrorist attack i say that in air quotes I mean, that's um, true, but, but I think this was the hugest one because it was really, like, who would dare to attack the government? Like... A white man, uh, Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yes. But I it's find like, that so ironic. I guess it, nobody, has, like, expected anybody to attack because it's not common to attack politicians or people in power uh, in... I mean, Scandinavia in general, it has happened that, you know, people have been murdered. Yes, but that is mostly just one person or so. But this was like a huge attack on the whole body of the government. Uh, I guess the like he also targeted, you know, the prime minister or then prime minister. Um, yeah. But, you know, my... So, so my my but I understand like, what you, know, you mean. Like thing, it took too long. What, I get it. Like obviously one and a half hour, or honestly, it's gonna be. It's actually three hours from the attack because they never caught him. Was, they didn't catch him the first time. He they they caught yeah. him after he did the second attack, which means they yeah. took it even longer. Which even less of an excuse. But and this yeah, is not like yeah. this is the eight. This is not like the nineties or the eighties where this was so early. This, yeah. is, this is like yeah, you're right. this is like twenty tens. You know, we had things mm. that you can catch people. Even then, that that was one of the problems. But they had also security footage, like yeah, security there's cameras. cameras you know, there's yeah. grids. I'm like, you but know, because I'm, he was posing as a police officer, it was harder to like, yeah, determine. But also, the, uh, I'm not going to nitpick that because I can easily just tear that part to shreds because the lady said you know like he was posing as police officer right if nothing happened yet why is this dude in riot gear already that's a red flag if there's no one dispatched in the area then okay we need to look for somebody who's masquerading as a cop especially most cops you know within a certain precinct within certain like regions locations know each other so look for someone unfamiliar Hmm. That simple, and the problem solving to that is if you're going to respond to a crime and the late I don't know if the, did the lady say it was a cop specifically um, with a helmet so you can really yeah, see so, the face or anything. Yeah, so I was just like, you knew this information going in, but whatever. Like I said, that's not the point. I was that was something that bothered me, but whatever. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Sure. The problem for me is like one. Um this all started when he was a child now most and this applies That's to what pretty much psychiatrist says yeah yeah most people don't realize and this includes um pretty much every family the way you raise your children will definitely have a huge impact on how what kind of path trajectory they're going to have for the rest of their life um if you raise your children in a very abusive home there is a high likelihood that they themselves can be abusive or they can turn out like someone like him. Um, especially when, you know, there, there was a chance for them to have a better life, but then the system itself prevented that child from becoming better um, because it was well known. The neighbors had reported it. The father had tried to get custody because the mother was very, you know, se- sexualizing I him. I mean, it took time for the father to get custody. When he heard what was going on, he was like, oh, 
But he never got but custody, other remember? Other he didn't really have any connection with the, the child or the children or anybody. I mean, until and that's, and that's fine. Because, like, I understand, like, I know they didn't put this detail in, but what it sounds like is his disconnection to the children was more because he was trying to disconnect from the mother. Because the mother was known to have a personality disorder. She had, she was what, bipolar as well? And she had a couple mental no. illnesses. She wasn't, they didn't state anything of bipolar, but I guess based on what they, the impression might have been that way. But they were most, mostly stating that she had a personality disorder. Yeah, a uh, severe personality disorder. And also disorder, de- depression, severe depression. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't and, bipolar, the depression. Yeah. Yeah, but she had a personality disorder, which, as, um, you know, obviously off the mic, you know, we've, you know, talked about stuff like this before. Personality disorders are very extreme. Very little mm-hmm. control over your emotions, pieces of it regarding your identity. Like, there's a huge spectrum of how personality disorders can not only affect the person themselves, but how they interact with people. And the fact that she had kids made it even worse because it sounds like she had just a bunch of turmoil imprinted that on the kids or on him and then the father it seems like was trying to disconnect from not necessarily only from the kid but from her as well because you know once he found out about the situation he tried to get custody and then they just negated it period so he didn't get custody but she didn't lose it and then she she was was able to get the weekend assistance yeah And I was like, that's that's a sign that something is going on. And the system failed from the very beginning to help this child when they needed help. And I hate how consistent it is across the world, how when a child needs help, the system doesn't work. But when the child is so in a perfectly healthy home. As well. Yeah, like they had everything. And then they were like, yeah, like there was based on the research of this backstory and everything there was no reason to continue having him with the mother right everything was going against it so I, nobody knows really why they decided to to do this like uh switch between the foster family i guess you if you call it that way and even the foster family even though it's not mentioned in the script they even said this is scary like the child and the mother's behavior is very strange like everyone reported that this is a red flag and nobody did like nobody did anything about it they just continue doing this and it sucks because there's been recollection and like I said this is unfortunately the child care system in almost every country almost every country where situations mm-hmm. like this where the child needs to be removed they don't remove the child. But in homes where the parent actually may be loving, caring, but let's say, for example, they don't have the financial assistance, in some countries, they will just be like, I don't care how much your child loves you. I don't care what you are trying to do. We're going to take the child away from a loving home. So it's like the system is always working in like this negative sense where it's not, you know, being used to improve the the welfare of the child in a lot of cases. And this is a prime example of that. Now, he already had showed a lot of, you know, tendencies of being this this empty void of a child. But if they were able to separate the child from the home, 
you know, the, the chances are that either he could have recovered to some, you know, sort of normal life. Maybe he would have never been, you know, completely normal in terms of his emotional expression and how he understood emotions. But at least it could have been this wouldn't have happened. But because at the very, very beginning, the system failed, we ended up with one of the most horrible and heinous crimes on, you know, in history because of just someone not doing what they were supposed to do. And it sucks. Yeah. So that that's my biggest gripe with the story. Just how the system just from the very, very beginning was the shortcoming that kind of caused all these events to happen. And a small change could have just made a difference. But, you know, you can go ahead. I'm, that, that was the part I wanted to kind of get into. Yeah, because I also want to tell this and say this to the audience, uh, because I know people feel like, oh, don't use, you know, uh, one's mental state as an excuse to commit crimes or to lessen or, you know, feel sorry for the perpetrator or whatever, right? But uh, both me and Devante feel like it's very important to go and be through all with the background and one's mental state because um, that most of it affects the things that you do and how you, like, end up becoming, end up becoming, you know, the person you end up Oh, I can't speak. But you end up becoming a certain type of person based on your experiences as a child or younger or whatever experiences you've been going through. That's why we did focus a lot on the evaluations of the different psychiatrists. It also became, ended up being a really a huge uh, discussion regarding his mental state and how he was evaluated. And I also want to go through a couple of things about that as well. Um, you know, as we already know, uh, the first evaluation before the trial ended up being a very different compared to what psychiatrists and experts did after the second evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, they, which was also more fitting to his backstory and background as well. And also history-wise with the mother and everything. Uh, and I find that very interesting how the first evaluation deemed him criminally insane, which will also give him a like milder uh, sentence. Uh, I think that's interesting um, because usually that's a normal thing that tends to happen uh, when, at least what I think, when it's like white people making mistakes or making or doing something of this degree and this is not only what I'm talking in Scandinavia I'm talking like around the world as well um, that they get this like criminally insane kind of evaluation and then end up not being put in a mental hospital or whatever a mental institute or whatever and uh, I'm glad as also in what we talked about later here in this uh and the and what the and I'm glad that most of the people and also experts and psychiatrists noticed this and did evaluate him fairly and deemed that he was not having psychosis or anything like that that he was you know sane when he did these things mm -hmm. but he just very extremists um, so I do think that's really good that they made a thorough evaluation after that as well based on everything that we know. Um, I also want to talk about certain things 
Uh, a little you, bit of... Before you transition off this, there is a question I guess I want to pose to the audience, you know? It's just something food for thought, I guess. Um, So in this situation, why is it that, uh, you know, that there were so many conflicting versions of what he mentally was capable of? And I want all, everyone in the audience who listens to the podcast, put yourselves in, like, you know, the victim's shoes. Imagine losing someone you care about, right? But then you see the court trials, you, you're, at the, you're at the trial, and you see that they're debating whether or not he was mentally insane enough and should get a lesser sentence for not being aware of his actions. Now, my question to you would be, would you be upset because being someone who experienced that you know that he's capable of planning something for such an extensively long time for like nine years for nine years based off of the information that they presented to you does that sound criminally insane to you or do you feel like you know despite everything you know yeah he, he has a mental illness and you know he should be you know just treated as if he's not responsible for his actions because to me at least it sounds like he's more than capable of following through and creating plans. So that's just for me. But like I said, you can go to the next part. This is a question for the audience. Just think it through. Uh, Wait, what was the question? Sorry. I think I kind of died there. I'm sorry, guys. I'm a little bit sick, so my brain is a little bit mushy. What was the question? So the question was, how would you feel knowing that someone like this... <laughs> who was capable of planning for nine years this giant massive action how would you feel if the court tried to deem him criminally insane when you know this person is not insane they, they may have a few loose screws but they have the ability to plan they understand the totality of their actions and how would you feel if the court was just like, nah, he's just crazy. He's not responsible for his actions. How would that make you feel, especially if you were related or one of the survivors of the situation? How would that make you feel? That's my question to, you know, the audience and to the world. Mm. Yeah, I think also like this was actually a, very, a huge surprise as well, because something to this degree doesn't happen in Scandinavia in general. Um, and, you know, after 9-11, uh, a lot of mm. people started having this, uh, this hate, but also this being afraid of Muslims in general. And I guess he already had these extremist thoughts. And after like 9-11, that's like one year after he started planning the attack. He started planning like one year after 9-11. And I guess it kind of like started making him feel some type of way about it. Um, and also him wanting to be a polit politician uh, and stating things like now, like this was recent, this was like this in 2022. Where he was like, I want to yeah, be a politician yeah. and I'm still going to be a Nazi. Go for his extremist right. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> because around Europe, most of the countries have started going towards that, that direction. And I guess he thinks he can provide more doing that or whatever. But, you know, it's scary in a way where, you know, people kind of just like, yeah, 
I'm gonna like I don't know I think it's scary how extreme some people can be and it's also very visible in today's society as well especially in Europe how um, a lot of people are starting to be very right extremists in general but I'm not going to talk about too well, much about the politics and stuff because you know it's not really what this well, I mean, uh, this, this episode is a little bit political I mean, his it motivations is, are very much political I mean it's know? true but I don't want to go too deep into it. I just find it interesting that um, most of the, like, I feel like 9-11 was started making people feel some type of way. And then they ended just being too extreme, you know, but. Well, I'll put it into perspective, not only for like for you, but everyone else in the world. Uh, The 9-11 was obviously it was a very tragic event obviously now what tends to happen because you know 9-11 is not the first incident in which like things like this cause a catalyst of things to transpire is that it gave people ammunition to be upset about a reason uh, to be upset and blame a, a reason to be angry at a group of people yeah so remember not that long ago within some people's lifetimes actually a good chunk of the population's lifetime there was a huge chance there was a huge uh period of time when people was like oh my god you know all these asians coming over to the country Mm -hmm. they're gonna turn our democracy into communism Mm -hmm. everyone was afraid of that and that lasted for a while it's some people still have that ideology they still don't like people of asian descent because they feel like oh china you know communism and you know oh my god i don't want that like you know people have a motivation to hate then 9-11 comes along gives them motivation oh my god islam you know you know all this oh my god suicide bombing you know all stuff is tragic yeah it's crazy you know it's crazy but it just gives people ammunition like it's always the it's always a fear and i hate to say this but not really um it's usually the fear of you know usually white european or european-based people or christian and and uh, evangelicals and just anything white centric that usually has this fear of foreign you know cultures or anything that gives them you know just feeling like you know whatever they have is going to be somebody else's that they don't want to give and that's a theme throughout most mass shootings most mass shootings on the planet but i'll just use america because you know that's where i'm from 98 point what 80 something 90 something they're white and a, like about what what 75 percent of them 80 percent of them have that same mentality where they don't want they don't like black people they don't like asians they don't like you know muslims you know they don't they don't like anyone who is not you know of that european white descent for a reason because they feel like change Anything that involves people of color. I think it also could be based on bullying too, that they've been bullied. It is beliefs. You know, it's their belief. Or whatever. But there are some people who are very extreme as well and, you know, shoot down schools, especially picking up certain types of schools as well uh, with minorities. You know, so it's, it's that belief that puts ammunition in their back to have a reason to blame a particular group of people for you know whatever it is that they feel that they should be blamed for and that's one of the biggest issues that we deal with as a whole you know just you know realizing that 
as a group, as a human race, you know, that's why I always in the podcast, I'm like, hey, be a little kinder, nicer to each other, all that stuff. I do that. You know, we need to be better at being better to each other because just because someone doesn't have the same point of view, perspective, ideology, or even religious beliefs as you, it doesn't make them or you any less than someone it's, else. It's so, very horrible because, like, he, uh, Breivik, that is, he did the same thing. He kind of, like, if he thought that one of the children who escaped looked right wing or basically looked like a extremist White. he would spare them if they asked for mercy and uh, it's it's crazy because like you know if you looked basically wide enough then you could survive and uh, but you know it's you know if I haven't put a lot of details because most of it is very gruesome so if you guys want to have a really in-depth like research go ahead but it's very hard <laughs> to go through all that and read it i just you know i feel horrible for the victims those who survived um alive today have to have that trauma uh from back then and be reminded every year you know about the attacks and He's also alive, you know, in jail with basically no parole. But it's scary that he might be free someday, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, you, you know, the the whole point of uh, Scandinavian kind of like jail is to eventually free the perpetrators. Or to like, rehabilitate and then let them go. Yeah. Exactly. Which also the lawyer of, of Breivik stated before. Uh, so, but you know, uh, the episode is obviously way longer than usual. Oh, well, but, yeah, it's a, you know, just <laughs> super long. food for thought. And I'm going to emphasize this till the day I die. We need to be nicer to each other, we need to be far more tolerant of each other. You know, yes, we are different, we have different cultures, different backgrounds, different beliefs, different, you know, f- we're just different. And that's the most beautiful thing about the planet Earth. We are all different. We all have something different to present to the table. And also for some of the podcasters who, you know, this is not a bash on white people, obviously. You know, unfortunately in history, that's the way history played out. But this is not a bash on white people. This is just a message saying like, hey, if that's not you, that's not you. But just be sure to stick up for your neighbor be sure to stick up for those you know who may be different who may need some support you know because we live in a very interesting time and we have been living in interesting times for hundreds of years uh, for many different people who may look like me or some other folk who are of color but just be nicer be kinder treat each other with respect you know not everyone has to have your same beliefs and ideologies you can walk away from it it's not that deep you know, life is all about the experience, it's about the journey. Uh, and, you know, that's what makes us as a human race very, very beautiful. We're different. Yeah. So show love, show support. I don't think, you, you know, know, extreme extremists are good in either category in general. If, as you said, I think it's important to be understanding and understand different people. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, violence is not the answer. 
Um, we all are living in this world, in this same earth. And, um, you know, understanding will take you a long way. Yeah, it will. You will be surprised at people you meet in life who can really change your life all because you, can't you took really, the time to... You can't really, like, blame to... somebody for something. Like, you have to, you know, I don't think that's fair in general. Try to be understanding so just... and, uh, yeah. I was trying to make sure you're done because, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I'm, as I said, I'm sick, so my brain is a little bit fu- funky right now. But go ahead. I was sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, just show each other love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you can, do it. You know, if you're one of those people you feel like you can, well, if you're listening to the podcast, you know, number one, and you're one of those people who are just like, yeah, I can't tolerate that. Then that's interesting that you're listening to this. But if I reach one person, I've done my job. You know, that's that's my purpose. You know, to let people know, just it's okay. Just you know, show, show some love. You know, you, all that food that you like, a lot of those recipes that y'all like, you'll be surprised how many of it came from uh you know, different cultures and ethnicities and, you know, trust me, you'll be surprised. So love one another. And to end it on an even better note, an even more kindly note, uh, obviously let's end this episode with some food. Um, you know, we always like to bring such a negative thing and uplift it a little bit with some food options and something you guys can go out and try if you want. So I am thinking, what am I thinking today? What am I thinking today? Um, I think I can go for a nice burrito. Um, I can go with some fried rice. Uh, with eggs. Shrimp fried rice? Chicken fried rice? What kind of fried rice? Huh? What kind of fried rice? What kind of? With eggs and some, some chili oil and garlic and spring onions and stuff you've been watching all those tiktok videos that's why you're saying this I was, yes but i was actually <laughs> feeling for some fried rice anyway i mean i could go with some like jamaican fried rice thing they do fried rice right but like it's more like rice. It's not. It's hard to say. I don't think it's, it's fried. If you go to a fusion spot, yeah, it looks like it's fried, spot. but it might be just seasoned and just looks amazing. I never tried Jamaican food. I think I should probably put it on my bucket list. No, you don't have to worry about that. Mm. <laughs> well, anyways, that's. that's I hope you today. enjoyed today's episode. Sorry for being uh, a little downer today. <laughs> yeah, I know this story was a little. It was intense, down. though. You know, yeah. Yeah, very intense. A lot of details and uh, wartime numbers for the person responsible for the killing. But this is the second to last, I must uh, say, iPad, the second to last episode for the podcast. Next week is just going to be a general discussion, you know, of how starting this podcast, you know, what inspired us and just being better podcasters and just talking about the previous season and all that stuff you know we're, we're gonna wrap it up and uh you know the the podcast is gonna come back in september for season two um which is basically you know when we started the podcast in september so uh we're just gonna come back in season two you know bigger better 
stronger, faster, because it's about drive. It's about Bro, power. Is it hunger? Um, yeah, I thought about the same thing. Now I'm so dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, just, you know, once again, even though it's not the last episode, still appreciate y'all for all the people who, you know, stopped in, listened, and consistently listen every week. Um, it's all love. I'm sending my love. You know, can you feel the energy coming your way? Um, and also, once again, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, for season two, we're definitely going to figure out a better way for us to not only post consistently, but communicate and have a place for all of us to talk together. Um, so that way we can, you know, just have a centralized place of, you know, getting suggestions, getting updates and just overall communicating and being the little private detectives that we are and, you know, collectively investigate crime across the world. And hopefully, you know, we can bring change. So, um, yeah, so follow us, everything, including Twitch. Um, you know, maybe many people don't follow us on Twitch, which is okay. I will still, you know, promote it. Follow us on Twitch. You know, we'll be doing live streams for season two as well. Um, just so that way we can, once again, have a more live personal connection with you guys and talk and go over maybe, you know, not maybe, but, you know, interrogations, uh, case files, and just go over more details of things we can't really cover in the podcast because we don't want to have two, three hour podcasts every single week. That's exhausting. So let's kind of, you know, link up outside of whatever podcasting platform, the link in, you know, in every description or every episode description or every episode link or every website link to the episode on the podcasting platform will be available. So you can go check that out. And, uh, I love you guys, positive vibes and, uh, you know, make sure you guys send your positive energy towards me because New York City is suffering from this Canadian fire. And, uh, you know, we are in a smog. So, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm indoors at the moment, obviously. So hope you enjoyed and uh, we will catch you next week. <laughs> Peace out. Bye.